Well, hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the United States Border Patrol Academy's podcast. Here with us today is the Chief Medical Officer for CBP, Dr. Tarantino. Doctor, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you are the first Chief Medical Officer that CBP has ever had. And when most people think about a law enforcement organization, they don't typically think about that aspect of it. What exactly is a Chief Medical Officer? What's your role in one of the largest law enforcement organizations in the world? Yeah, well, thank you. I'm I'm still charting charting my path a little bit, but so far um, I can tell you that the CBP senior leadership has really recognized the importance of medical support to the CBP mission, medical support to operations, medical support to the workforce, and medical support to persons in custody, and that's a growing responsibility on on the operations side, workforce side, and persons in custody. CBP has about forty lines of medical effort. Um, taking care of persons in custody, taking care of our workforce, taking care of our EMS program, emergency um, medical services program. We have approximately 1,800 EMTs, making us the largest EMS program in all of DHS. We have flight medicine. We have dive medicine. We have medical quality management. We have medical reporting. We have um, any number of lines of effort going on any given day. So the leadership thought it's really important to really build out the professional medical direction and oversight of that. And so the CMO position is responsible for medical direction oversight of our medical support efforts. And also I'm building out a team to help out with that, uh, a, a medical officer for Border Patrol, a medical officer for OFO, a medical officer for AMO, a public health officer, a behavior health officer, an EMS director. So a lot of exciting things going on. and. Of course, now I and this team are able to respond to COVID as well and play a very lead role in COVID response, again, to operations. How is COVID impacting our operations? Also our workforce and persons in custody. So that's been a big part of the job as well. And let's take that down to what the uh, first responders uh, can resonate with. So you said 1,800 medical trained personnel. If we were to look at uh, an EMS service within the cities uh, someplace or, or a fire department, 1800 is a massive, massive agency in anybody's standards and, and providing medical direction and, and oversight to that many people with that kind of scope all over the nation, that, that's a big responsibility, kind of speaks to why CBP needs somebody like you. Yes, and, and it can't be just me. And um, that's why I'm bringing in some other physicians, I'm bringing in EMS medical director to help direct that program. Um, because it is really remarkable. I mean, CBP is obviously around the whole country and stationed out throughout the country. We have medical personnel who are conducting rescues on any given day. If you read the significant incident reports, there's almost any, every day, there's some sort of rescue, some sort of medical response, often multiple, and then many that don't even get reported because they're, they're um, just kind of addressed and, and then, and then move on. So absolutely to make sure the training is in place, the quality is in place, the equipment is in place. And, and it's not just approximately 1,800 EMTs. We have paramedics. And then, as you know, we have the Borstar program and our austere paramedic program. Our austere paramedic program is a real sort of upper echelon of medical, medical capability in terms of tactical medicine as well as austere remote paramedic medicine. That's a real elite team you know, comparable to some of the most elite teams in the U.S. military. And so to properly oversee and direct and manage all that, uh, we really need to have the professional medical direction in place, which we're, we're building out. 
So you hit on two things, and I want to go back to the the job opportunities for somebody in CDP in a second. But I want to talk about this this rescue aspect that you touched on. This is kind of the the unseen mission for the men and women that go out on the front line in CBP every single day. Literally every year, we have hundreds and hundreds of rescues, and that doesn't count the uh, the EMTs and paramedics when they respond. Many times, as first responders in their communities, while wearing this uniform, I have to think that there's probably thousands of incidents like that that take place every single year. That mission and what we contribute to the community on that side of things makes CBP even more special in my mind. Absolutely. And, and it's kind of a, a, another um, reason to build out this medical team so that we can track that even closer and, and sort of capture those statistics and tell that story better than we have been. Because it is a great story. Our, our, our agents and officers are out there all day, every day. And, and sometimes it's, it's an agent or officer who isn't e- even EMT trained, but will participate in a rescue or put themselves on the line to, to help someone out. And so we're trying to capture that more. Um, we're starting up an award, the, the Chief Medical Officer's Life-Saving Award for, for our personnel that engage in, in these rescues and, and life-saving efforts. And, um, yeah, something that we definitely want to capture and, and tell that story um, a lot better about. And it could be on any given day. I, I read all the reports. Um, more and more naloxone saves. You know, we have the naloxone program, and, yeah. and we're saving people out there by using the naloxone, AEDs, tourniquets, things that we learn in, in our in our trauma, in our um, trauma field care, the IFAC kits and things like that. Those are being utilized out there, and, and we're saving people's lives. So, And especially in many of the border communities are remote, just by mm-hmm. definition. We're talking about the southwest border. We're talking about the northern border. And many of us that wear this uniform have obviously had a chance to, to work in several of those areas. And I, I personally can attest, having been up in the state of Maine, and some of our men and women and, and their, uh, their station assignments, the communities that they live in, they may not have EMS that's 24-7. It may be all voluntary. Or they may not have uh, police departments for the towns. They rely on the county sheriffs, one or two on duty at any given time for the county. And so they literally are the first call when somebody in that community needs help. And they respond. This training that they're able to do because of your office affords them the ability to help their communities in ways that we probably didn't think about before. Absolutely. And that's why we're trying to sort of refine and in our ha- enhance our tactical medicine training um, for agents and officers, as well as our EMTs and paramedics. And a lot of that starts here at Fletzy. I know, I know some of that training starts here and is going on here. And we want to help. We want to help enhance that and and provide subject matter expertise to that. So, Doc, let's talk a little bit about uh, a point you touched on earlier the jobs that are available. So when somebody joins CBP, either as a CBP officer or a United States Border Patrol agent or an Air and Marine uh, interdiction agent, they start off in their basic roles, but there are opportunities for them to to segue into areas that interest them. One of them is the emergency medicine opportunities that are out there. They, you mentioned the Border Patrol Search Trauma and Rescue Team. It's one of the premier search and rescue organizations in the country. Uh, we have an, a vast EMT program. There's, there's all these jobs that uh, create little niches that uh, that a person can gravitate to if they're interested. Talk a little bit about what's available to somebody that joins CBP and that, that may be interested or have a background in emergency medicine. Absolutely. And and that's another that's another area that, that I want myself and my office to engage in is to really sort of um, sort of enable and facilitate th- these sorts of opportunities. 
It can start um, at first with just being a first responder, a medical first responder, getting some training and, and being familiar with things like the IFAC kit and with the um, AED, CPR, AEDs, and naloxone. That's a very potent arsenal of, of assistance right there. And then on top of that, you can get um, through CBP or you, on your own in the community or through CBP, you can get your EMT certification and become an EMT as a collateral duty. It doesn't mean that you become a full-time EMT. You're still an agent or an officer first, um, but you can get very engaged in EMT work. And that's in available in AMO, OFO, and BP. Border Patrol has the largest and the highest number of EMTs, but OFO is building out their program and expanding, and AMO as well. And that's something that we're going to be a part of facilitating. So that's the EMT basic level, and you can do a lot of amazing, amazing work in that area, and, and, and you'll get some experience and, and utilization through that. You can step it up to an EMT advanced with through additional training or up to a paramedic. Um, and then also we have some of our special units like the Borstar team, um, which is um, is obviously their, their agents and they have that training, but they get specialized tactical training, specialized search and rescue training, as well as additional medical training. And that's a po very powerful combination. And they're the ones who are out on the tip of the spear doing these rescues in, in remote locations. But even on top of that, we have the austere paramedic program where you're already an agent and then you're an, a paramedic. Then we give you additional training to make you a so-called austere paramedic which we give you very highly specialized intensive training so that you can function remotely um, without direct medical support for 24, 48, 72 hours if you find yourself cut off or, or in some really remote location. And it teaches a lot of independent uh, medical practices and techniques through protocols. And um, so that's a very elite kind of tip of the spear um, capability set that, that some of our agents have as well. And you mentioned the IFAC, which, of course, is individual first aid kits, and that's some of the basic training that, that all agents get here at, at the academy. And because the areas that we're asking them to go work is, is austere, you know, it's some of the remote, uh, the most remote and, and most dangerous areas that the, in the country, particularly along the border areas. And so the ability to uh, exist and function in any of these capacities for prolonged periods of time is critical because they may be, uh, you know, hours before uh, assistance can arrive, you know, EMS, uh, Life Flight, uh, the fire departments, simply by nature of the fact that they're working in these these locations. Exactly. And so I think that the, the FLETC, the Artesia Academy here, has a real important role to play to build that initial capability set in, in the trainees because they're going to go straight from here out to the field and they might find themselves out in emergency, a remote emergency situation. So the training you get here, again, the basic skill set of the basic first aid, CPR, the AED, the IFAC training, the Loxone training, that's a very powerful set of tools that um, then um, post-academy, you can continue to build on that. And my team and I want to continue to make those resources available uh, to help um, to, to help support the, the basic training at the academy, but then also career-long training um, opportunities if, if people are interested. And so uh, just so everybody knows, if, if you are interested and you're, uh, you're looking to join the Borstar team or, or become a, uh, an EMT, those opportunities exist once you go through the basic academy for Border Patrol or uh, OFO or for Air and Marine. Uh, typically, there is a time and service requirement, I think, for Borstar. It's still two years 
not sure if that's the same for the EMT program right now. But uh, key is you do need to join and, and become a officer or agent and then put in for these positions, which they're available to anybody. Uh, once if, if, if the mood strikes you and there's something that you're interested in, then by all means, uh, we need all the help we can get out there. And you can see that we're doing everything we can to invest in it to include having a chief medical officer. And, and let's talk about you, Doc, for a second. So you come to us by way of uh, being a career Navy man uh, with uh, extensive credentials uh, in the medical community. You spend a lot of time working with the, uh, with the Marine Corps. Yes, sir. And uh, you... Let's see, it says uh, executive director for the Yellow Fund, senior physician for medical planning and preparedness, international medical corps, the associate director for Uniform Services University. So this is not your first, this is not your first walk in the park. No, I've had a, an interesting and kind of a varied career path through the military, through a lot of operational assignments, and then uh, a couple of interesting assignments after I left the Navy with um I worked with the International Medical Corps, which is a global humanitarian organization. So we did a lot of global humanitarian work on Ebola and, and other things. And then I ran a veterans nonprofit for a year. But then I saw this opportunity in, in, in um, CBP and it looked like a great fit for me. And I'm in about my third year now and um, I've been able to sort of um, learn the culture and learn the operations and use that to really get leadership behind really building out the medical support. And, and I've been drawing on lessons I've learned from the Marine Corps. I was the director of, of medical programs for the U.S. Marine Corps. I've um, had other similar leadership positions, and I'm trying to bring some of that experience and expertise to the unique culture of CBP and, and the unique cultures within CBP of Border Patrol and OFO and AMO and the unique operation, operational um, requirements. So it's fun, exciting time. You know, obviously we have a lot of challenges right now with COVID and then also the ongoing sort of um, migration surge at the Southwest border. But those only have, have made our medical support efforts even more important. Absolutely. And so you come to us at, at really an opportune time based on your background experience, you know, having dealt with things like Ebola, Zika, HIV outbreaks. So dealing with a, a pandemic, unfortunately, is nothing new for you, but it's it's experience that could not uh, come to CBP at a better time, given the COVID environment that we find ourselves in right now. Yes, and I, I wasn't expecting it, um, but I did know for early on, I, I began to see that uh, CBP is, uh, is kind of exposed to and deals with public health and infectious diseases on a daily basis at our borders, at our ports of entry. It might be scabies, it might be tuberculosis, it might be possible measles. Um, so that's part of, you know, the day-to-day -day life for CBP. And of course, CBP has dealt with um, pandemics in the past with the Ebola scare, with SARS, with um, H1N1 um, going back over the years. So there was some, some um, preparation in place, but this COVID pandemic is, is so unique and pervasive that it's really required uh, um, some real new approaches and processes and protocols. And it's been very interesting and rewarding to work on that because I feel like CBP has really responded well, um, kind of set the standard for all other DHS agencies, let alone other in, in the U.S. government from day one CBP leadership um, brought me in and made sure that our emphasis was workforce health and safety are a top priority. Uh, we got to continue our operations, but workforce health and safety are a top priority. And we've been very aggressive in that from the beginning. 
Absolutely. And I, I, I think that uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask some questions for everybody listening that might want to know. So one of the things that, uh, that we've been doing is kind of learning how to live with COVID in our daily lives. And some of that has been preventative measures, PPE, things that we have to do. Let's talk about the masks. So explain for once and for all for, uh, from a medical doctor, why are nas- masks important and what do they do? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, to really get into it, you have to even break it down to what do we mean by a mask, because that can be confusing to people also. Also, So there's there's cloth face coverings, which could be a bandana or a gaiter or, or homemade masks that are made out of fabric. That's one level. Next level up would be surgical face masks. Um, and then next level up would be N95 respirator masks. And they, they serve different purposes and they have different levels of functionality. Um, the N95 is considered PPE, it's considered personal protective equipment, and it's meant to be fitted, it's meant to have a seal, and it's meant to provide very good protection for the user, as well as people that that person might be exposing. And we have very clear um, standards and guidance in place through our job hazard analysis of where and when the N95 and PPE and things should be worn, depending on the risk, the exposure risk, the duration, the job task, all of that. So that's the N95s. But throughout the the course of this epidemic, a lot of research, and we're still learning about this virus, but the the latest advice and guidance from the CDC and the research is pointing to the efficacy of cloth face coverings or surgical face masks in protecting people from exposure. Number one, you want to practice the proper hygiene. Wash your hands. Don't touch your eyes, your nose, your mouth, um, and, and take proper precautions in that regard. Um, number two, you want to maintain the social distancing, um, six feet apart, avoid large groups. Um, but then on top of that, the mask use has been shown to be effective, whether it's a surgical mask or a cloth face mask. Mostly the thinking is that those masks, because they're not sealed, because they're not proper PPE, they don't protect the user as much as other people from exposure if that person happens to be positive. Great point. Now, there's some protection for the user, um, and the, the recommendation from the CDC and, and my recommendation, and, and CBP is making this more, more um, specific in some of its guidance, is to use the cloth face coverings and the face masks in congregate settings, in, in places that are higher risk, or certainly in places where you can't stay six feet apart. And um, that's, that's been demonstrated to play a large part in kind of driving the infection rate down and the exposure risk down. So a couple of great points there. So number one, I think it's important for everybody to understand that the, the mask is not itself the panacea. It's not the end-all, be-all that's going to solve all the problems. It's used in conjunction with other things that we do to, to keep safe. Right. You also made mention of the fact that the surgical masks and the cloth coverings they actually probably do more to protect everyone else from you. So you're wearing it as a courtesy to help protect other people. Is that accurate? That's the kind of current state of the thinking on it. And that's kind of what the, the current evidence is, is, is pointing towards. Yes. Okay. And so the six feet rule. So we've seen these in, in pretty much every building we go in now, every, every store. And you, you toured the, uh, the base with us right now and got to see uh, what we have here at the Academy. Uh, on the floor, it marks out six feet, so everybody stays six feet apart. What does that do? What is that all about? Yeah, that's a great question also. And a lot of that, and even some of the mask 
mask use data, some of this six feet data preceded the COVID. It was based on studies of other infectious diseases. And, and a lot of it is done by some very detailed technical research in the labs where they can actually monitor the length, the distance that a respiratory droplet travels versus an aerosolized particle. And it's thought that largely COVID is spread through respiratory droplets and that it's known that those, the risk of transmission of those diminishes dramatically at the six foot mark. Actually, it drops off considerably at the three foot mark and then it goes lower and lower by the time you get to six feet. So six feet is actually kind of being a little extra cautious in from the three to six feet range. And um, so it's based on a lot of pre-existing science and data. It's not obviously a hundred percent perfect rule that, you know, six feet is exact in every situation. It's a guideline that comes from the science and the, the, the approach and the thinking is to decrease that direct spread from respiratory droplets, which is the primary means of, of exposure. Okay. And really, these two things, you know, wearing a mask, ensuring uh, the six, uh, six feet, social distancing, washing your hands, keeping your hands away from your face, it takes all of those things together to, to be the most effective. It's not any one thing that we do, which is why we have these things implemented across our organization, and, and you'll see it in the, in the communities as well, they're asking us to do all of those things because really to be the safest that we possibly can and prevent that exposure, we need to be doing each and every one of those. Is that? Absolutely. And I would add a couple other elements to that. The, the isolation is if you feel sick, if you have symptoms, you need to stay home or isolate or, and not expose anyone else. Seek care. Talk to your supervisor or your instructor and consult your medical provider. Um, so if you feel sick, have symptoms, you got to isolate yourself and, and get that looked into. That's on the isolation side. On Then there's the exposure side. If you've been exposed or you think you may have exposed someone, that needs to be tracked down as well because those people need to go into quarantine for 14 days, now possibly 10, 10 to 14 days to avoid um, exposing additional people. So those are really important pieces of it as well. If you feel sick, if you have symptoms, stay home or stay, stay in your room, isolate yourself. If you've been exposed or have exposed someone, you need to follow up with the exposure risk assessment, the contact tracing. The CBP's put out very clear guidance on that as well as part of our COVID toolkit. And I know there's, there's processes and procedures here at the academy for that as well. And you, you talked about something that I want to, I want to go back to. So, and this probably is true for you coming from the military, but here in the Border Patrol and CBP and just in general, and I think probably translates to most first responder agencies and, and law enforcement, the culture is to, to push through, to, to be tough, to be strong. And so when it comes to, to being sick or taking a sick leave day, uh, our culture taught us to, to show up because if you don't show up for work, you're, uh, you're doing a disservice to your teammates. You're making them pick up your slack. That's turned on its head today. Today, we actually are telling the reverse story. We're saying, if you show up to work feeling sick, you're putting your teammates and friends in harm's way. That's something that we need to kind of be adopted throughout the entire organization to really have that impact. Stay home if you're sick. Don't show up to work. Nobody's expecting you to be tough. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, and, and we've tried to put in place policies and procedures um, to facilitate leave if sir, someone has or has been exposed to COVID. But absolutely, it's important to 
sort of, you know, it used to be like you're saying, it used to be able to take one for the team and come on in and, and gut it out. Now it's take one for the team by staying home and, and keeping your, your, your coworkers safe, but also the operations. If you go in and you expose 10 people and then they expose 10 people pretty quickly, you've shut down a station or you've shut down an academy or, or something else through, through your, you know, possibly well-intentioned desire to get in there and, and do your part. But the, the real well-intention is to stay home, get it addressed, get it taken care of. And because this is real, it can, it can really impact operations. But also, unfortunately, we've had a number of deaths in CBP. And, um, you know, it's, it's, this is, you know, for younger, healthier people, they may think, oh, it's not a big deal to me. But in, throughout CBP, we have some older people. We have some people who have some medical conditions. And unfortunately, we've had, we've had a number of deaths in CBP. So it's, it's, it's a real deal. Well, and that's something I think about on a regular basis. So uh, the majority of us that have it, and, and I actually, I, I caught COVID uh, during my time here at the academy, and, and for me, it was like a, a bad head cold. It, uh, you know, I didn't have the fever and some of the other symptoms that, uh, until I had the loss of taste, and that was one that was, a, of course, a red flag for me. Thankfully, I stayed home as soon as I started feeling sick to make sure I was practicing what I preached, and, uh, and it got me thinking that while most of us probably do recover, there's always that, that handful that won't, that that can and do die from a disease like this. And I think for, for any of us, the one thing that should be on our mind is we don't want to be that person that was responsible potentially for, for somebody losing a loved one or losing their own life because we didn't heed those warnings. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's the, the strongest case you could make is that, and, and you don't want to, you know, sort of, um, you know, maybe inappropriately refer to these deaths, but the one thing we could learn from them is the is the need to to be cautious and take the right precautions and, and do the right thing to to protect our our coworkers. And you see, I'm wearing the uh, the mourning band on my badge right now because uh, it's it's been that kind of a year. We've we've lost entirely too many. One is too many, entirely too many of our brothers and sisters out there that were exposed while on duty uh, to COVID and yes. succumbed. Uh, that needs to change. We need to stop that. What are some of the things that they can uh, they can look for in terms of signs and symptoms that be a, a red flag for them to maybe think they might have been exposed and need to get checked? Well, yeah, there's a great question. And so the the risk of exposure is generally thought to be, I'll, I'll summarize it, There's uh, we have very ex, uh, detailed guidance out this through CBP, through what's called the CBP toolkit. And I, I recommend that people look at that. First of all, Look at the CBP job hazard analysis that looks at the job task specific exposure risk and PPE recommendations. And then the CBP COVID toolkit has about 15 pages of definitions and it has exposure risk assessment guidance, it has return to work guidance, it has face coverings guidance, it's a very useful tool. But in general, to, to, to simplify it, the risk of exposure is generally thought to be 15 minutes of exposure to someone that you're within six feet of. So again, stay six feet apart and, and don't get close to people in mass gatherings or, or for prolonged periods of time. If you have that, if you're within six feet for 15 minutes of someone with COVID or suspected of having COVID, then that's a significant exposure that you have to take the exposure precautions um, for part of which will be looking for symptoms. And so whether you're, you know you're exposed or not, you need to be vigilant for symptoms all day, every day. And unfortunately, they're kind of nonspecific, but generally 
kind of flu-like symptoms. You could have um, cough, shortness of breath, fever. That's the classic initial triad of, of one of those symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath. But others have been added now. And, and interestingly, as you pointed out, loss of taste or smell is pretty specific for COVID. So if you have loss of taste or smell, you got to take that very seriously, and, and that's COVID until proven otherwise. It can also be general gastrointestinal symptoms like um, nausea or stomach upset or diarrhea. Uh, it can be muscle aches or pains, and it can be other nonspecific symptoms. So if you're, if you're having any new symptoms that kind of fit that pattern or just don't seem like something that you, you know 100% what it is, then you need to presume it's COVID until you get that checked out. That's great advice. And, I, and I'll say just kind of as a, as a personal testimonial, you know, where it hit me, I didn't know what to expect if uh, when somebody talked about the loss of taste, the loss of smell, it's, it's happened. I think it's, somebody can more readily recognize it. But the consistency of the food was there. You could even feel the spiciness of the food. But it's like somebody muted the flavor. So however, however much flavor that food normally had, and I'll give you an example. If you're drinking uh, a diet soda, you can tell that it's carbonated. You can tell that it's cold. But you may not be able to taste that flavor. It'd be like club soda. I wasn't prepared what to, uh, what to, what to look for in that particular sign or symptom. And for me, uh, I kind of had to guess. And so erring on the side of caution, because I didn't know what to expect, I went ahead and got checked. And, and sure enough, that was a telltale sign. And, and I was thankful that day that I, that I stayed home, went and got tested. Some of those symptoms are probably going to be a little tougher to detect. I think you always have to err on the side of caution. That's what we're advising now. Everyone, the guidance to across CBP is everyone every day should be self, what we call self-observing, self-observe for symptoms. You know, essentially every day before you go into work, get up, say, am I having fever? Am I having cough? Am I shortness of breath, loss of taste or smell, some, some GI upset, muscle aches or pains, or something else that's just unexplainable? If so, don't go into work, contact your supervisor, and then consult your medical provider and, um, and get it sorted out before you risk exposing people. That's right. That's right. So the, the quarantine or isolation period. So we've heard 10 to 14 days. It's uh, that's the current CDC guidelines. What's that about? What, what is that based on? And what, what do they say? 10 days versus 14 days. What are they accomplishing by having somebody stay isolated for, for two weeks? Yeah. Great question. And that's again, based on a lot of science and studies that preceded COVID, but also now it's being informed as we learn more about COVID specifically and it's looking like the, the infectious period, which means someone has COVID, what you're interested in is the period of time that they can get someone else sick. And it looks like that that really, the peak of that is between maybe day three and seven. Um, so that's where a person is at the highest risk of spreading it. But that doesn't just go down to zero at day seven. It kind of trails off to by day 10, it's pretty low. But there's still some people from day to 10, 10 to 14 who in the right circumstances can still transmit it potentially. Um, and that's why the 14-day um, CDC is now thinking maybe the risk is so low at day 10 that we don't necessarily have to have everyone go to day 14. That can be a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but that's how you get the 10 to 14-day window is because that's where the risk of spread is going down to practically zero during that period of time. 
And you made mention of it earlier when we were talking today. It kind of boils down to how much risk are you willing to accept. And that's a great point that it doesn't just stop from one day to the next. It still could. It's not an exact science. You said it before. It, at some of these uh, some of these junctures, it becomes more art than science as we try and find our way through this. Absolutely. So for the testing. So, uh, again, there's multiple kinds of tests out there. And then depending on who you go to is how much time it takes to get back. Uh, how accurate are they? Yeah, another great question. Testing is um, a challenging um, issue, partly because of availability, but partly because of expectations. Um, you know, people kind of come to view testing as kind of the solution whereby, uh, you know, it'll give you all the answers that you want to have. Uh, first of all, there are several different types of testing. There's so-called antibody testing, which can tell you if possibly you've been exposed to COVID in the past. That testing hasn't proven to be very reliable, and um, it doesn't necessarily, you could be negative for on a COVID test, but still have COVID and vice versa. So it's not really reliable. We're, we're not really advocating its use very much in CBP. It might have use in certain circumstances through your doctor. So that's one testing. Then there's the diagnostic um, testing which is um, it's called PCR testing. It's, it's the state of the art. It's the most um, sensitive. It's the most specific. Um, and, but unfortunately, it still takes two, three, four days sometimes to get those results. Then there's the rapid testing, and that's, look, that's called antigen testing. It's looking for evidence of the virus, but not necessarily the virus itself. And that can be turned around in an, in an hour. Some, some testing is now coming out that's home use, um, that's on the horizon where you can self-test at home, but those tests aren't as reliable as the as the uh, diagnostic testing. The diagnostic testing is um, is very reliable, but it can still have false positives and false negatives. It can some you know a certain test could say you're positive when actually you're not. Maybe what that might mean is it's so sensitive it's picking up some viral fragments that you had months ago, and you're already over it. And it's only still saying you're positive. Also, it might um, it might say you're negative, but yet you just haven't converted to positive yet. And the rapid testing is even more that way. And what it means is, this is why the limitations of testing. You might be tested, and it might say negative, but actually you're in the process of becoming positive, and later that day you'd be positive. Um, so it's not really helping you that much. And in fact, it's been shown that if you're in that kind of transitional phase, you could be test negative, but you could be even be infectious at that point in time through these rapid tests that aren't as reliable. Now, it might also test you and say um, you're positive, but you might actually not have COVID. Um, so for all these reasons, testing isn't like the be all end all, because here's another point. Say you've been exposed and you say, you've got to have your 14 day quarantine. Even if you test negative during that period, that doesn't mean you can come out of quarantine because you may just not have become positive yet. You still have to finish the quarantine. So, you know, testing has uses. It's important. And I know that the, the academy is using it to, um, because of the unique circumstances here at the academy, the congregate settings, the, the, the high exposure risk. And, and so that makes a lot of sense. In, in a general day-to-day um, -day operations in the field or public, you know, testing has its limitations. Certainly, if you have symptoms, um, it's worth getting tested to see if that's COVID or not. Um, 
And, but if for general use, just to reassure or come out of quarantine, testing really has limitations. On the good news side, it is becoming more and more available through the local health systems in the community. Unfortunately, there's more demand right now because we have more cases, a holiday travel period, but I think testing availability will continue to increase. And hopefully, and, and you may be getting ready to ask me about this, um, as the vaccines come on board, um, we're going to see less need and less demand for testing. So I do want to talk about the vaccine here in a second. But I, So if I can just kind of sum it up, so the, the PCR test is probably the most accurate of the tests that are available. Yes. And depending on when you get tested uh, after your exposure could determine if you're positive or negative. If you get tested too early, you may come up uh, negative and you may be positive later on. Exactly. So I can tell you here at the Academy, we do that. Uh, we incorporate... Uh, two different testing periods during the person's uh, restriction of movement or our isolation period. They get tested initially, and then several days later, they get tested a second time. So we actually use two tests during the isolation period to try and hone in and make absolutely sure that they're not contagious when they actually go join the rest of the trainees. In this kind of a setting, that, that's good, but it's much more difficult to do out in the open in the public. So I think your point is don't rely exclusively on those test results still exercise every precaution. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in, in sort of the general general setting, testing has sort of a, a limited role. Um, the, the, the real important parts of what we've already talked about is the personal hygiene, um, um, the preventive measures, the PPE, the masks, the social distancing, the isolation if you're sick, the, the exposure um, assessment, all of those measures. And testing may have a role if someone's positive through their health system to check and see if that's COVID or not, um, but it's not necessarily definitive. Okay. And somebody like me had it. Am I immune for the rest of my life now? That's another great question. We're still learning about COVID by definition. You know, it's only been around a year, so we only know what, what might happen for up to a year. Um, there is evidence that there is significant um, long-term immunity from COVID exposure. It may not be 100% protective, but it would make any future cases very mild. Um, but we're only a year out, so we don't know what happens in two years or three years or four years. Uh, the vaccines um, show evidence of at least months of, of immunity, and the thinking is that they're going to confer at least a significant amount of immunity. But again, only time will tell as we, as we continue to study this. Okay. So before we go to the vaccines, last question on, on that uh, particular topic. Do people need to be afraid to be around people that have had COVID and already recovered? Um, much less risk, much less concern. And um, the, at least four months after the infection, there's, there's no to minimal risk at, in that period. Um, we're still kind of waiting to see and get more data on what happens in the month to year, months to year timeframe, but definitely less risk. Um, but um, the, still the advice, the guidance is to continue to practice the, the, the protective measures of the personal hygiene, the social distancing, the mask use and, and isolation, uh, all of those things until we have um, more data and more experience. Okay. So the vaccine, 
this is the you know the hot off the press. It's 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 rolling out. Vaccines are starting to be administered. There's a uh, you know the the top tier individuals. You know of course the the people in the high risk categories, the nursing homes, and then shortly on the heels of that are going to be our first responders. And many of the folks in CBP are probably going to start to fall in those categories. <coughs> Tell us about that vaccine. What uh, what does it do? What makes it effective? How does it work? Yeah, the 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 vaccine developments are really exciting and and kind of. Um, you know, kind of historic in, in, in the ability to develop um, several vaccines in less than nine months and get them through the, the, the research, the development, the testing, the approval, the manufacturer, the shipping, the delivery is it, really historic achievement. And right now we have two vaccines you probably heard of, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. They're similar. They're very... Um, um, technologically um, advanced vaccines in that they're what called they're called mRNA vaccines. So what they're sh- they're, they're providing is just a little snippet of of, uh, of a copy of the genetic code of just a little part of the virus that codes for a protein in that virus. So they're going to send that the vaccine will send that into our body. Our body will recognize that and translate that into making some of those proteins that our immune system will then be trained to attack. (laughs) So if and when it ever does see the virus, it'll already be trained to respond to it and take care of it. So it's a unique approach. In the past, they've had to use (coughs) actual viruses or viruses that were killed or weakened. And um, so this is theoretically and in practice so far, a safer, a more elegant, a more direct approach. And these vaccines, were studied extensively. Some people might be alarmed. Well, they got them out so fast, they must have cut some corners. No, they still did all of the phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, which means they were tested for safety and efficacy on tens of thousands of patients around the world. And what they've shown is that both vaccines are close to 95% effective, which is historic. The flu vaccine, which we encourage people to get, is only 40 to 50% effective. Wow. These are light years ahead of that at 95% effective. Now it remains to be seen how long they will be effective. Maybe it will become an annual thing. Hopefully not. There's reason to think um, that the the protection will extend beyond that. But so highly effective, but then safety as well was looked at very closely. And through all of those trials, they didn't see any incidents or pattern of significant adverse events. What they did see was the occasional um, sort of vaccine reaction, which would be a mild a headache, um, mild just muscle aches, um, um, just not feeling quite well, very mild flu-like symptoms, similar to what you could get from other vaccines. And what that is actually a sign of is that the vaccine is working because it's stimulating your immune response, um, and, and that is creating some of these reactions. So um, those, um, those reactions were mild and self-limited, and did not present any sort of concern for any significant or or lasting adverse effects. So the safety profile is very high as well. These vaccines are being rolled out across the country as we speak, and they're being targeted to healthcare workers and nursing home long-term care residents. CBPs, EMTs, and medical personnel are gonna be in that first tier of priority. And the next tier of priority will be first responders and frontline law enforcement which we're going to make sure CBP is at the front of the line for that as well. Interesting. So with what you know right now, 
do you feel comfortable recommending that uh, that people get the vaccine? I do. And in fact, I'm going to get it myself. And um, as a healthcare worker, but also as sort of, um, you know, to kind of lead by example for CBP to, to sort of use the process, but also to hopefully demonstrate um, confidence in the vaccine. Because I think it's very important that our workforce get it. Obviously, it doesn't work if you don't get it. And we continue to be exposed on the front lines. And I don't want to see any more preventable um, loss of life. I don't want to see any more hospitalizations or ICU admissions. And I want, um, you know, I want to get this out and, and have, have it accepted by our workforce. And I think, you know, I'm glad to, to lead by example on that. I, I feel very confident about the safety and the efficacy of it. So I would recommend it. Okay. And so potentially this could be, it could turn into a seasonal shot. It could also be a, uh, you know, one time and, and you're good. We still don't know that part yet. As it stands right now, this vaccine is actually given over two doses, right? The, the initial two vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, they require two doses, three to four weeks apart. There is another vaccine that is likely to be approved in January that requires only one dose. And so we're still waiting to see the final safety and efficacy data of that one. Um, but there's some potential vaccines in the pipeline that might require only one dose. Okay. So been with CBP for a few years now, and this is obviously, I would go out on a limb and say uh, one of the most significant events that you've dealt with in, in your time with CBP. And, and we all hope that that stays the case for, for a long time. The, uh, during your time here, Switch topics and talk a little bit about your thoughts on CBP. What what does it mean for you to be a part of this organization? What does it represent? Yeah, that's um, that's a that's a real thought provoking question. Um, from day one, I was really impressed by the the professionalism and 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 um, sort of the culture and the you know the mission of CBP. It's, it was a good fit for me, having come from the, the Navy and the Marine Corps. There's certainly different organizations in different cultures, but some similarities as well. So the, the professionalism, the pride, the, the, the variety of the mission across CBP, from AMO to OFO to, to BP, but even within, say, Border Patrol, I've, I've, had, I've had the... The advantage of being able to travel out and see a lot of operations all along the southwest border, but I've been on the northern border and I've I've flown with AMO and I've been at the airports with OFO and it's a it's a really diverse mission on the front lines all day every day and it's something new every day you know you never know what to expect and um, I've been pleased by how the 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 medical support. Um, has been embraced by by the front line as well as by the leadership. And I, I think we're in the process of, of building something really exciting that's going to really help um, CBP operations as well as the workforce. Well, I couldn't agree more. What, what do you envision the medical program uh, as chief medical officer CBP? What's the future? What, what is it going to look like when you walk away to – put a stamp on it, say, I accomplished my mission. What does that look like for CBP in the future? Yeah, we're still kind of thinking and working through that, and we want to develop a real strategic plan and a vision and a mission and ethos and goals and objectives. So we're looking at that, um, but I would say to really professionalize it, make sure that the medical support, again, whether it's for operations, the workforce, persons in custody, is done at the highest level that's commensurate 
with um, the level at which we operate uh, in our in our law enforcement functions. I want that same level of professionalism and integrity on the medical side, and I want the level and and depth and scope and scale of the medical support to be commensurate with the largest law enforcement agency in the country. And you know we need to have make sure the medical support is on that same scope and scale, and. Um, so making sure that we have the right professional medical direction and oversight in place, making sure we have the training, the equipment, the policies, the procedures, the doctrine, um, all of those, uh, I think, will, will, will create a really professional uh, medical support effort. It's exciting to think about. Any message you want to give to the, uh, to the frontline troops out there? Um, just say that um, we've got your back. CBP Medical is growing and expanding, and we've got your back. If you have any medical issues or questions, please reach out to me or my team. Um, you know, through your leadership, through your through your um, EMS program managers in your sectors, through your sector leadership, through your station leadership. Um, always, always want to hear what we can do to help support the front line. Dr. Tarantino, I want to thank you. We are uh, obviously very fortunate as an agency and as a uh, our Green family here and, and throughout CBP to have you here, especially in this moment in time with what, the, what this past year has represented for all of us. Very thankful. And you instill a sense of confidence in the direction that we're going and, and how we're handling it uh, from all of us here at the Academy and, and throughout the Border Patrol and, and CBP. Thank you for what you do, and uh, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for another episode. Uh, thanks for joining us from the United States Border Patrol Academy. We'll talk again soon and on our first.